The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast, Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know I'm determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. I'm about to introduce you to my next guest, but before I do, remember that we are on Spotify and we want you to review the show. I want to know what your favorites are. So if you do post a review on Spotify, you'll get a free bottle of boost. That's the secret to energy and to keeping you super powered. So just remember to post it, email it to hello at drtaz.com and we'll make sure you get that sample of boost. But let's move on to the guest at hand today. I have Dr. Negla Risk. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and women's health at Rikers University. And she's medical director of ambulatory services at Virgin Newbridge Medical Center. Her interests include endometriosis, pediatric gynecology, pelvic and vulvar pain disorders, and female sexual dysfunction. So many important topics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Risk. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. We are thrilled to have you here. And, you know, it's been an interesting time, I think. So many women, first of all, just feel overburdened. I think this has been tough in the pandemic for women, more so than men, I think, just because they've had to manage their families, they've had to serve as teachers and educators, but still kind of keep the family unit humming. Many of them are working. Almost 60, 70% of women in America work and have children at the same time. So women are really, really stressed. And one thing they do when they're stressed is they start skipping their appointments. And I know this because I run a medical practice as well. And I know that, you know, that's the first thing to go. I'll get to that. I'll do that pap later. I'll do that mammogram later. What are you seeing during this pandemic from your perspective? And what do you advise women who, first of all, maybe just overly stressed or they're scared to come into the doctor? What are your thoughts there? That's actually the biggest thing we faced when the pandemic first broke. Uh, New York, New Jersey, as you know, hit hard first before the rest of the country. And um, the first thing to drop was the obstetrics and gynecology or the the gynecology clinic, Mm -hmm. because um, you're right, women did not seem to put themselves first and ever that we usually don't. Um, So there's so many things that women can do now that the pandemic is spreading further throughout the country. Just as a reminder, you can, you need to take care of yourself because you can't give eggs out if there's no eggs in your basket, you really need to replenish yourself first. Um, And in order to do that, you need to make sure that you're healthy. Um, So taking care of your own stress levels, obviously, deals with or helps you deal with the rest of your pain and the rest of the physical pain, mental pain, all those uh, emotional stresses, which all do tend to come out as physical pain somewhere or other. As far as your routine appointments, a lot of that, or at least some of that can be done at home. Um, Okay. Some things you can't, like mammograms, you can't do at home, but breast exams, you can definitely do at home. And that's something we need to continue to do on our own once a month. uh, Anybody who has breasts should still be doing breast exams. You know, it's so interesting. Like when I was, I feel like when I was coming along as a younger woman, like that message of breast exams and self exams was out there and pretty strong. And every time I would go into a regular doctor's appointment, they would ask me if I had done a breast exam and they would do a breast exam. And what I'm noticing now is that many young women don't even know that they're supposed to do a breast exam. They're not doing self breast exams. What do you think is happening there? Where's that disconnect? And what is the right way to do a breast exam? There's several ways to do the breast exam. 
and there's no particular way that's better than another. But I think overall, we've re- started to rely so much on technology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. MRIs are getting better. Mammograms are more digital and the digital readings are, are brighter and clearer. But we still have a lot of women who are finding their own nodules and their own abnormalities before anyone else finds them. Wow. Um, especially, a young, especially among younger women. We start doing mammograms at age 40 for a woman who has no breast cancer in the family. But there are still a lot of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer before age 40. And those are all women who are finding their own lumps and bumps and bringing that to the attention of a physician. Do you feel like um, the incidence of that is increasing in younger women where more young women are getting breast cancer or having issues? More young women are being diagnosed. Mm. It's hard to tell if there's a higher incidence, if there's just more of it, or if it's that we're getting better at diagnosing it because we're talking about it more. Okay. And the same goes true for cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. We're doing less screening in the office because it's not really cost effective in the office. But with more and more people losing jobs and losing health insurance, you still need to do a a pap smear and check on your HPV, the human papillomavirus. And that's something that Everly Well, for example, um, it has a home test kit. You can just, you know, order the test or we'll get the test at several of the the, um, pharmacies and stores, depending on where you are in the country. And that's a kit that you do at home. That's fascinating. How is that done? It's a vaginal swab. Ah, it's a okay. simple do at home Q-tip tight test, send it in the mail, you get your results. And then if for whatever reason, there's a positive result, you'll get a free consultation with the, with an actual board certified physician, right? Any other questions, you can take those results to your physician and, and have another discussion or whatever treatment is, but at least you haven't skipped it. That's so true. That's such a good point. It's fascinating to me how we're innovating ways to bring medicine home, you know, versus necessarily thinking about the doctor's office and the trip and the parking and all that other stuff is the only way to, that's the biggest complaint I hear. They're like, we love coming to your office because you can pull in and get, come right in. We don't have to go to a parking deck. So I'm like, I never realized parking decks were such an impediment to coming to the doctor. I'm glad I don't have one, but that's fascinating. So Everly Well has the vaginal swab to test for HPV. Uh, how often, first of all, let's clarify for everybody. What is HPV in case somebody listening today is not aware of that? What is HPV and why should we be worried about it? HPV is the human papilloma virus. It's the virus that has been linked to cervical cancer. Um, there are many strains of the virus itself. Some of those strains are, we call high risk strains. And those are the strains who are, um, linked to the abnormal cells that can form and then can eventually proceed to um, making cancerous cells. Then there's a whole bunch of other strains that are linked to uh, vaginal warts. Mm-hmm. So those are the low risk strains. So there, it's really important to figure out if you have that virus, first of all, and if you do, which one of those strains you have, because one is dangerous and you need to be followed for it. And one is not so dangerous. You still need to be followed, but not as strictly. And if you don't have either one, 
then you can be followed less frequently. You can have a pap smear every five years, for example, for certain age groups. I was actually about to be my next question. So breast self-exams should be done how frequently? We recommend once a month for women who, so that it just becomes a habit, have a period at the end of the period, you're going to do, you're going to take a shower once upon a time. Right. We hope you're in the area (laughs) as you wash, pay attention. That's it. Easy. It's simple in the shower is the best time because your fingers are wet. Your rest of your body's wet. Just pay attention to what's below the skin. That's it. Simple. And if it's once a month, always after your period, if you're getting a period, because that's when the breast is less bumpy okay. and less tender. Gotcha. Um, that way, as a, as a habit, you won't forget. Right. I like that. That's great advice. What about the PAPs? How frequently would you recommend a PAP? The PAP after age 21, uh-huh. it, uh, the newer recommendations are after age one, it's every three to five years, depending on the HPV results. Okay. So this is where it becomes important to know what your results are until menopause or until age 65. Okay. So the older you had a hysterectomy or, you know, your ovaries have been removed. Do they still need PAPs? Ovaries are not really involved in the whole situation. So if your ovaries are there, they're there. Um, The whole issue is with the cervix. So whether whatever type of partner, a woman has is not related male or female or whatever partner type you have, you can still get the HPV. So that's very important to keep in mind. Right. Um, then once, if your cervix is gone, if you've had a hysterectomy and the cervix is gone, we're not too worried about HPV. Gotcha. Okay. Cervix is gone, not likely to get cervical cancer. Okay. Unless it's been removed for cervical cancer, then we're talking, about a different form of follow-up. But if you've had a cervix removed as part of a hysterectomy for something else, then, you know, that your follow-up is, is uh, your follow-up for cervical cancer then stops. If the cervix is gone, your follow-up is gone. Uh, Women over the age of 65 who've always had normal pap smears don't need pap smears anymore. Okay. Great. The idea is that it proceeds, uh, if you've had a normal pap smear all along, the likelihood of then contracting HPV and having it actually take the time to do anything in a postmenopausal woman is, is, uh, it takes such a long time that we wouldn't even be worried about her developing cervical cancer. Gotcha. Okay. Those are all helpful guidelines. Those are questions that I often get from women in practice every day, things that they're confused about or heard from a friend or all kinds of ways we try to understand when it comes to taking care of our health. Now, one issue that you're very passionate about is endometriosis and how it's been managed, diagnosed, treated, all that other good stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. I feel like that's one of the hidden conditions of women that are not talked about very much thought about like after the long list of everything else has been thought through, um, but really affects women and their vitality affects their ability to get pregnant, causes pelvic pain, abdominal pain, you know, GI issues, so much more. So tell us a little bit about what's happening in the world of endometriosis and how can women recognize it in themselves? 
Endometriosis has been vastly underdiagnosed. So many women have it. I don't think any of the publications that are out there, any of the numbers that we hear are remotely in any way realistic. Wow. Um, what is said is, or what those studies say is about 10% of women. Quite frankly, I don't think 10% of women have endometriosis. I think it's a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a situation or a disease where normal tissue, normal cells from the uterus are found somewhere else. Um, so when a woman has a period, those cells also bleed wherever they are in the body. Mm-hmm. So the symptoms can be different for every woman, but primarily uh, it'll be pain before the period or during the period. It'll be sometimes heavy, heavy, heavy bleeding for some women. Mm-hmm. Some women will just be bleeding that's not on time. It'll be an, an irregular bleeding, an irregular period. For a lot of women, it causes pelvic pain that will come and go at different times of the cycle. Women who have pain with sex, and that's very, very common. And unfortunately, women don't bring that up with their gynecologist. Quite often, it's something that women are too embarrassed to talk about. Right. Or it'll be something that comes up and gets glossed over because there are other things that are more important. Got you. And then how is it diagnosed? More often than not, you have to remember to ask and discuss it with your doctor, because if it's not thought of, it's not going to be diagnosed. Okay. Now, a lot of our modalities, um, the way we test like pelvic ultrasounds and MRIs, mm-hmm. sometimes we can see it hmm. depending on the strength of the MRI and the person who's reading it, who's, who's looking at the pictures. Um, but again, if we're not focused on it, it might be right in front of us and we won't see it. And the other thing is the physical exam itself. But uh, sometimes we just rely on the history. If, if all the criteria are there, all the symptoms are there, that has to be our first diagnosis. Um, We've ruled out all the other common things. Gotcha. It's fascinating that you're saying those cells also bleed when they're elsewhere. Does the thickening of the uterine lining ever sort of, portend or is predictive of, uh, endometriosis. Like if someone has a very thick endometrial lining, you know, or things like that, is that something they could use? No, it doesn't help. Not at all. Such a tough diagnosis. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes the, the abnormal location is actually the wall of the uterus and that's mm-hmm. adenomyosis, which is yeah. very similar. It's related yeah. uh, because it's in an abnormal location. Yeah. Um, and that is more obvious on ultrasound or MRI. Um, also causes heavy bleeding, but the pain is different. It's the pain during the menses, during the period, not before. Mm-hmm. But how often have we been told as women that it's normal to get period pain right. and cramps? Suck it up. You're a woman. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, but it shouldn't be more than 36 hours max, your pain. Yeah. And it shouldn't be overwhelming and you shouldn't be bedridden or, you know, vomiting and, and diarrhea. And those are all signs. And once sort of the suspicion is there, or the diagnosis is made is, is surgery, the next option, or what's sort of the next option? Next option for mo- for the most part is a hormonal therapy, either birth control pills or a hormonal IUD. Definitely, definitely not a copper IUD. Cause that will absolutely make it worse. Hmm. 
Why is that? Fortunately, I've seen that. The copper itself tends to make the inflammation worse inside the uterus. Ah, okay. It doesn't quiet anything down. Gotcha. It actually makes everything worse. You bleed more hmm. and you have more pain. So that just kind of triggers a snowball effect. Got it. Fascinating stuff. What are other causes? So you mentioned pelvic pain and, and pain with sex as being some of the symptoms of endometriosis. What are some other causes of chronic pelvic pelvic pain? Many women have it, but don't want to talk about it. Um, or, or they talk about it, but then they're super shy or, you know, they just try to dismiss it until it becomes debilitating, right? I feel like the only time I'm able to pull somebody out or get, get them to talk about it is when they have something like interstitial cystitis or, you know, they really can't have sex anymore and it's real, it's impacting their relationship, you know, but what are other causes of pelvic pain that women should be thinking about and having a conversation with their doctor? Well, like you said, interstitial cystitis is another one and that mm-hmm. causes, it comes up with a different set of symptoms. Um, Pelvic floor musculature, the the muscles that hold up the pelvic floor in general, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they're very, very tight. And that could be a cause that could be caused by either old trauma or stress or um, something that is not physical, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe an emotional or psychological something else. Right. um, The woman just kind of holds that stressor in her pelvis. Wow. It may be caused by um, some kind of GI or some kind of colon issue, but a lot of times even that colon issue may have endometriosis in the background mm. of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just a Crohn's disease, not kind of not that kind of colon issue, but it may still be related to endometriosis. Um, could be fibroids, fibroids right. that are big and heavy and sitting in in, a, in the back or in the in the bottom portion of the uterus. Um, I've seen that quite often. Um, so, you know, those are, those are really the more common of the, of the group. Um, but we really need to, to be open and honest with our doctors. And if you're not getting an answer, don't be afraid to go to another physician, right. go to a gynecologist, stay after your own health. Definitely. If you've heard from someone, oh, it's just in your head or don't worry about it. It'll go away. If it's not going away, it's not going away. Yeah. To find an answer. The answer is so many women just don't want to talk about it. And you mentioned, mentioned in our intro uh, that you have a background in pediatric gynecology as well. And I feel like in practice, I'm seeing a lot of young women, teenagers, even with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome or incredibly heavy and painful periods what do you think is happening there? Do you think that's an escalating issue? Uh, what's going on with our young, young women? And I'm slightly selfish in that question because I do have a 12 year old as well. So just curious. <laughs> um, partly, I think it may be what we're eating and how, yeah. how we're feeding our food. Um, but the other part of it is that our younger generations are more open to discussing and more open to complaining about what's happening. Hmm. Um, I am seeing a lot more endometriosis in the younger generation. Mm-hmm. And that may be because their moms are listening more. Right. So we're diagnosing more. That's one possibility. When I was younger, nobody thought to bring little girls to a gynecologist. Right. It was like, you know, taboo. You don't, right. you don't do that. Right. Um, we've gotten over the concept of, 
you can't put little girls on a pill. Yeah. I think, you know, some of that has gone away. Some of those um, notions have gone away. So we're more open to treatment. And so we're more open to diagnosis. Um, But you're right. PCOS has definitely increased because our obesity rate has increased. Mm -hmm. And there is a strong link. Not all girls with polycystic ovaries are obese. They're still the, what we call the thin PCOs. Right. Right. Um, so that does exist. And that's something we not fully understanding, but that's there. And yeah. the idea is we still need to treat those because the overweight women or adolescents with PCO, there's an underlying insulin resistance. Um, and we need to treat that because the insulin resistance is worse than the polycystic ovaries mm-hmm. you can do with four periods a year and you'll be fine. Not a problem, but you can't do with early diabetes. That's right. I definitely agree with that. Insulin resistance seems to be a recurring theme throughout so many of the episodes I do, because it just weaves through any condition, almost every major issue, but it's so connected to the state of our hormones. And interestingly, from the Western perspective, they don't believe in the the monthly cycle, but the Eastern view on this stuff, the Chinese medicine view, the Ayurvedic medicine view is uh, having that monthly cycle was so critical. It was vital to your chi is the way they would describe it or to your essence or to your vitality. So I think for all women, I think it's important, first of all, just to pay attention to it. Like, you know, what's happening. I've even been trying to teach my daughter, like, you know, what day did you start? What day did it end? What did it feel like? So she, and she actually tracks it. She's only 12, but she tracks everything, you know, on her uh, little app that she downloaded to, to get a sense of what's happening there. So it's been interesting to do that with her and also to help her just like so many women, I hope listening, help her with the connections, like certain foods make certain things worse. You know, she feels terrible. Like she has, she has a horrible cycle when she eats in a certain way or does certain things versus a period of time when she doesn't. So trying to help from an early age, I think is so important in educating young girls and young women about their hormones, about their periods, about their pelvic region. And I find it so interesting that you also bring up the emotional aspect of pelvic health, right? Because even again, if we turn to the Eastern systems of medicine, this is an energy center. You know, it's one of the key grounding energy centers when it comes to women and their feeling of of vitality and chi and all this other stuff. So I love when all of these worlds collide and and merge together. That's my favorite. So just an observation from there. Any like parting thoughts or last thoughts on what women should be thinking about when it comes to their pelvic health and their way forward? Um, one more thing, actually, uh, yeah. regarding hormones and pelvic health, and yeah. I get this question a lot is about women who are wondering about uh, where their hormones stand. And again, going back to being in the pandemic and not being able to get out there and right. get to the doctor. Um, again, Everlywell has different um, sets of hormone testing that you can do again at home. Mm-hmm. And it's easy, whether it's for thyroid or for diabetes or for uh, FSH and LH and estrogen, progesterone, all the female hormones that we need right. to check. Sometimes it's easier to do those at home, bring the labs already done to the physician, and then, you know, kind of go through them as long as you know what days are you need right. to have different yeah. things checked. Um, and that helps a lot too. And it sometimes it's what you what a woman would need just to quiet her own mind that she's not in menopause or, yeah. um, you know, things like that. And 
keeping in mind that if we're eating properly, we're trying to decrease our own stressors, then um, that's really the key, I think. Yeah. From my perspective, is decreasing the stressors. Yeah. Because the amount of pelvic pain and irregular menses that I see that is just linked yes. to stress. Yeah. Is out of control. Even oh my gosh, if only we had a pill for stress, right? <laughs> so, but no, again, some of these themes are just repetitive, right? It's like the stress and how it affects cortisol, it triggers insulin resistance, it drives the androgens up, it causes PCOS, endometriosis. I mean, I can go in 50 loops on any given moment with any different condition and tie it back to that very basic physiology. So again, I think, you know, stressing that self-care, right? And time to evaluate your life and make the right choices. Maybe that's the one gift of the pandemic that it has forced everybody to slow down a little bit and really evaluate what's important to them. And, and I think when it comes to women's health, I think that we are such complicated, intertwined hormonal creatures that our hormones sometimes are the first to tell us that something is wrong, but we ignore them. And I think the biggest crime I've always said is that we don't track this stuff. We don't track, we don't know what normal is for us in our twenties or thirties so that when we get to 40 or 50, you know, we have no idea. And so I think the more you can track, the more data you can follow, you know, whatever tool you can use to really understand your hormones and what your values are. I think it's so important. And a good doctor patient relationship takes that data and continues to, to dig into it and, and test it in different ways. And, and make sure that the patient has like a good plan. So, and that's a lot of what we do in practice as well. So I think all of this is so critical. Anything else before I let you go, such an important issue. If we're going to talk about women's health and wellness, this is critical stuff. Anything else that we left out? No, I think that's uh, pretty much covers the important things for now. <laughs> Wonderful. And if people want more information, where would you direct them to? That's Websites, resources, uh, anything that comes to mind or... Well, um, for endometriosis, there's the uh, EndoFound. Okay. Um, there's the Endometriosis Association. Perfect. Um, there's there's really a plethora of information regarding endometriosis. Um, Everlywell has a, its own sites for um, the blood test or the sorry the testing that can be done. So Everlywell's test Everlywell.com has its own test um, packs test kits that can be purchased in some of them in, di in different states. Unfortunately, New Jersey is a little slow, but uh, Everlywell's test kits are available in different stores. Those are some great resources. Well, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah. For everyone else, I hope you enjoyed this really important episode of Superwoman Wellness, where taking care of our pelvic health is critical. Now remember that we are on Spotify as well. So you can rate and review it and share it with your friends. And we are doing a promotion free bottle of boost, which has methylated B vitamins, all kinds of things that I think are critical for women's health. And all you have to do is post your review on Spotify, email it to me at hello at drtaz.com. And we'll make sure we get it to you. So thank you for joining, stay healthy, stay well, stay super powered. And I will talk to you guys soon.